Welcome to Developing Cybersecurity and Policy Training for IT Professionals, the last session of the last day. Thank you for coming. thought there very, could very easily be like five people here, so this is great. Uh, my name is Julie Goldstein. I'm with Information Technology Services at UC Santa Cruz, or ITS. Um, I'm one of our IT service managers, and I work in the areas of computer security, compliance, and security awareness education. I've been developing and delivering computer security awareness training for about three and a half years now, both online and in person. And for the last year or so, I've been working on an online cybersecurity and policy training specifically designed for our IT staff. I have to come over here to advance this. And in this session, um, I'll talk briefly about some reasons for this undertaking and a few words about management approval. And then the meat of this is talking about the process and lessons learned. And when I talk about lessons learned, I'll also be previewing some slides from the training that we're just about ready to go live with online. Woohoo! Um, and then wrap up with challenges and next steps. It's kind of sparse here, but please feel free to ask questions if you've got them. Um, I also I pretty much um, have time set aside for Q&A, whether it's during or after. It kind of doesn't matter. So ask them when you got them. And does anybody have something burning before I launch into this? Okay, always good to get that one out of the way. So reasons for this undertaking. Um, there are really a couple of reasons in my mind why we're developing a security awareness training specifically for IT folks. One is the thinking that everybody in an IT role at UCSC really should have some baseline level of knowledge about computer security, about computer security-related policies, because realistically, that's what the campus counts on us for. They should be able to count on any IT person that they work with that we have some basic level of knowledge about good computing practices and how and when to apply them, about security policies and how and when to apply them. And it seems like a reasonable expectation from our employees. And just in case you haven't been in a UCSC session before, UCSC has a, consolida a consolidated IT organization. So we've brought in all of our IT folks from all of our divisions around campus, and we have an organization of about 275 people. So it really is rolling it out for all of the IT folks on campus. Uh, the other reason behind developing this is we have a general computer security awareness program on campus. We've had it for about three years now, both online and in person. And it just doesn't really apply to the IT folks. It's just not quite right. When I do a training for the IT groups, and those of you who do training have probably experienced this, I have to tweak everything. Different examples, different scenarios, the depth is wrong, they need more here and less there. And so it's just sort of like another nail in the coffin that even though we have a training program, the material's good and everything, we really needed something more specialized for our IT folks. And, I mean, simple as that is, those are really the reasons behind this. So once our general program stabilized, this was the next thing we turned to. It just made sense. Um, a brief word about management approval before I really launch in. This training, the plan for it all along, was that it's going to be a required training. So... If you're planning to do a training that's going to be required in any shape or form, I can't say enough about securing management approval in advance. And by management approval, I mean basically by the person who's going to be requiring the training of folks in the first place. So at a high enough level 
that when you're done with the training and you've put in all the time and done all the work, because developing a training's work, that you know ahead of time that management not only supports the training but the requirement for it. Because that would be a major, major obstacle. If, I mean, like in my case, if I had worked on it for a year and now I go to management and they say, oh, yeah, no, we really don't like that idea. So I just, I just can't stress it enough. And at the same time, this is kind of one of those, okay, enough said, we can move on now. Um, any questions about any of that before I launch into the process? Um, something I should say about this, what you're seeing here, this follows the same look and feel of the training that, um, that I'm developing, the PowerPoint slide rolling through the agenda, all of that. So that's part of what, what I'm sharing here. Um, when I went to put together my notes for this, I was saying, okay, the process. This has been a year. This is long and involved. It's, it's taken forever, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I really realized, well, the process itself, the actual nuts and bolts behind the process of developing this training has been relatively straightforward. It comes down to figure out what you already have to work with and start there. Whenever you can avoid it, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't start from scratch. Put together a best guess rough draft. Take it out for a spin. Get some feedback. Make modifications. Get some feedback. Make modifications. Get some feedback. It's like wash, rinse, repeat. You know, lather, rinse, repeat, whatever. Um, over and over and over and over again. And in a nutshell, that's really been the process for this training over the last year. Uh, I do want to say a word about start with what, what you already have because you don't, depending on where you are in developing a training, you don't necessarily have a wealth of materials. For me, in this case, we already have a computer security training program, a more general program. I've done some trainings for IT audiences. I'm one of the people on campus that people come to with their policy questions. So I started with a pretty decent sense of what some topics would be that would be a good starting place. I had some materials, you know, PowerPoint, speaker notes, that sort of thing. But four years ago, when my position was created and we didn't have a computer security program on campus, we didn't have anything. And I was in the position of going, okay, so I get to develop security awareness training with what? Now, UC Berkeley at that time was working on a pilot computer security driver's license that they shared with all of the, um, all the different campus policy and security officers. And we looked at that and said, okay, this could be a starting place. You know, it's Berkeleyized and, and we needed to tweak and everything. But realistically, we were able to take that and that was a good seed. It was a good starting point for our training. So, when it comes to step one, I really highly encourage you, talk to your sister campuses, find out who's developed what, see what you can steal. Berkeley was very, very generous about, yeah, take anything, it doesn't matter, go for it. And that's what we did. And in fact, any Berkeley people in the audience? One Berkeley person in the audience. I don't know if you were involved in that, but the look and feel of all of our computer security training materials are still that original template that we got from Berkeley. It's sort of like the head nod thanks to Berkeley, that we're keeping that in here. Um, and all of my presentations, all of my trainings and everything still use that. So back to, back to the process that I went through, um, I, had, I had a decent idea of topics to include to start with. And I had a really strong recommendation to me that I use existing materials only. 
don't develop anything new. We have a training program. We've got some materials. Just collect what we've got. So in order to put together my first best guess rough draft, I literally went out and copied and pasted anything and everything that I could find about those topics that I thought, okay, we could maybe start here. Maybe we need to include those things. And I mean from PowerPoint, speaker notes, UC policies, UCSC policies, draft policies, emails, anything that I could find that was already developed, that was already written. I took a stab at how to organize it, at what depth and level to, to write the material, slapped it into about 50 PowerPoint slides, and that was it. That was my best guess rough draft, and that's where I started. Once I had that, I took it out for a spin and got some feedback on it. And the process of revising and feedback and revising and feedback, it was actually incredibly effective. I found out very quickly what worked and what did not work in that original draft in order to be able to refine it. And that brings me to lessons learned, which is really the meat of what I'm here to talk about. Um, the lessons learned and applying those are really what drove the evolution of this training to the point where it is right now. And all of it was because of this iterative process that we went through. But um, what I want to do is share with you some lessons learned, show you some slides from the training to help illustrate those lessons, and see if anybody has a, excuse me, any questions, anything you want to talk about, anything like that. Very first lesson that I learned, right off the bat, people don't like reading policy. They don't understand it. They don't have any patience for it. Um, I just got done telling you everything that I did was copy and paste. There was a lot of policy in there, just snippets, like copy and paste from this. Oh, they need to know about the electronic communications policy. Cut and paste. Oh, they need to know about our routine monitoring stuff. Cut and paste. Yeah, that didn't work. Uh, my poster child for a policy slide that didn't work is this slide about routine monitoring. And the purpose of including this was, where's my little nifty pointer here? The purpose of including this was so that people who perform routine monitoring to ensure the integrity, reliability, and security of IT resources and services would understand some of the responsibilities that go along with that routine monitoring. That was the point of including this snip from our website. And Again, it didn't work. People looked at this, and you could see the smoke coming out of their ears, and they just said, Look, just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me what I need to know. And I heard this over and over again with the policy slides. And again, there's a lot of policy in there. So what I ended up doing was taking a complete pass through the training and focusing instead on the policy, of, on the policy language, focusing on summaries, on key takeaways. Why did I include this in the first place? Okay, write that in the slide, as opposed to write the actual policy in the slide. This is our current slide. It's still kind of policy-y, you know, but it's a lot better. We started out giving people a sense of what routine monitoring is, because I'd say half of the people who went through the first pass said, I don't even know what you're talking about. So give people a sense of what it is. Um, there's a couple of points here, which is don't dig around in content if you don't have a reason to to um, see that content, and also um, if you happen to observe a violation that has to be reported, what to do to report it, and then additional information. And that was really how I went through and redid all the policy slides was, again, why was it in there in the first place? Okay, just say that. And it's, it's 
met with some decent reception. Um, another issue that these policy slides brought up, though, is the trade-off between brevity and clarity. Because when folks would read this information, the response was, oh, well, I don't understand this. Give me examples. I want situations. Tell me how to apply it. And then in the exact same breath, the exact same people would say, oh, but by the way, make it shorter. The training's too much shorter. Add, 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 and, and you know, make it shorter. And I mean, I, I hear the giggles. You know exactly that those are in direct contradiction. What do you do with that? And after hearing that a couple of times, what I did was I sat down with folks to try and figure out what it was that they actually wanted. And what I think I learned is that it wasn't so much about the length. Most people, in most cases, just plain old want to understand. That was it. That's what it came down to, regardless of the length. And the comments about the length really had to do with the fact that the material was dense. It was hard to read. And the reaction was, make it shorter. But really what they meant was make it easier. So an example of added length that's actually met with a lot of positive response is we added a food for thought section to the main policy section of this training. And what these are are real-life situations that have come up at UCSC for people to consider, for people to kind of focus their thinking before getting into the policy stuff so that they have a way to apply it. Take a, take a second scan through that. There are two pages of this. And I promise I'm not going to have all these slides up long enough for you to read every single word on them. Please do try and skim. After the um, conference, I'll be able to make the training available, uh, just publicly available online. And so we'll be able to get that, that information. So you can look at anything again. Um, OK. And second one. So we had eight food for thought questions to start out the policy section. And then people would you know, read through these, get this mindset, and then go through the policy information. And then at the end, I'm vamping for just a sec, because I know you're still skimming. You'll see some of these again. At the end, we gave them the answers. So it wasn't even just a, see if you can figure out from this information uh, the answers to these questions. We really focused the information for them. And this met with a lot of positive comments. It really, really, really helped people understand the policy stuff. It met all of the requests for, um, give me examples, tell me how to apply this. Again, it made the training a lot longer. But nobody seemed to mind about that. I'm going to show you another second page of answers. They weren't actually asked for, asked for the what? I'm sorry. Um, it's not appropriate. It comes up all the time. I mean, you know, who here works in an office where somebody's used access to a system to pull up information, innocuous information, for some purpose that they weren't granted that access for. It happens all the time. And this is just part of the education and awareness that, yeah, you really shouldn't ought to be doing that. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that somebody go to the whistleblower office on it. But somebody could. So again, 
um, just trying to focus folks on this. Oh, and I flipped the wrong way, so you got another sneaky peek at a couple of slides. Okay. Um, all of this said about adding clarity and, and you know, length being okay if you're going to make it clearer, I do have to backtrack and say, but if it can be short and sweet, make it short and sweet. I mean, you know, the one thing that I got from people is they really want to understand that's the most important thing. But after that, you know, they don't want you to go blabbing on and on. So I do have an example of the just keep it short as well. We have a whole section in the training on key security measures for IT service providers. This is one of the slides, and it just has a list of quick do's and don'ts for how to help prevent getting your computer hacked into. And in the general computer security training for non-IT folks, this is an entire module of the training. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes for me to talk through with non-tech folks. With the IT folks, it ended up, just a list just ended up being perfectly fine. So again, when you can be quick, I strongly recommend quicker is better. But clear is the most important. Another lesson that I learned from all the feedback, which was a really important lesson, is to be as black and white as possible, especially when requirements and expectations are involved. Conceptual didn't work. Abstract didn't work. Once again, people just wanted to hear, just tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and move on. And this is one of the examples of that, um, of a slide after we went back and rewrote things. This is um, information about getting requests for information. And we just tried to be as do and don't as black and as black and white as possible. If you get a request from the FBI or federal agent, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. If you get a request for information that's available to the public, this is what you can do. Anything else, refer it to the policy office. And oh, by the way, if somebody in a uh, um, position of authority is asking, all this still applies. If the chancellor gets a request from the FBI, they have to send it to counsel, even though it's the chancellor. One of the challenges about making things black and white, though, is that there's a lot of gray areas, especially in policy. And again, my poster child for this is our section about accessing electronic communications records. I don't know if anybody here was in the session earlier, either of the sessions earlier about um, incident response and getting people's permission before you access their records. This is a very confusing policy. The campus policy folks debate about it. So much less, you know, being able to put something total black and white into a training is a major challenge. And it went through lots of passes. This was the last section to get completed in this training. It went through lots of passes. We ended up with, you know, defining them, giving what we hope is a relatively easy to understand statement, providing information for where to go for more info. We have a whole slide on examples of situations where people do need permission. And then if you need permission, general rules for getting that permission or authorization. We have another slide. Try and ignore the box. We have another slide that gives examples um, about where permission or authorization is not required. And then some general cautions, some general do and don't, do's and don'ts. And people were still confused, you know, even with all of this, even with all of the yeses and no examples. And what people were confused about is 
when does incidental access to electronic communications records that's okay as part of your job all of a sudden cross this line and become non-incidental, real live access where you do need authorization in order to get into those records. And in the policy, that's a very fuzzy line. Like I said, we debate about this. And it became very clear that if we were going to keep this section in the training, and we needed to keep this section in the training, it became very clear if we were going to keep this, we had to come up with a line where one really, really, really doesn't exist. And this is where my personal lesson of sometimes good enough is just good enough came in. Because what we did with this is, okay, we gave it a shot. We came up with a line. We ran it by the, the subject matter experts. We ran it by our support center who has to understand this stuff. And we changed it. We made it better. And we ran it by the policy folks. It's sort of like the, the same process with the whole training, just over and over and over again. And once everybody agreed that it was good enough, we put it in the training. And that's what the clarification box on the third page is. We gave people a line. And the line, just to point it out, is it tells people that they can access information, incidental exposure is okay as part of their job, but, and here's the line, you may not, however, seek out or examine specific individuals, emails, files, content, etc., without specific permission or authorization. This may not be exactly right, but it really, really, really helped to tell people when they have definitely gone over to the other side. You're looking at somebody's actual email. Yeah, you need to get an okay for that. You're opening up somebody's actual files. You need to get an okay for that. Yeah. See, I'd call that gray. I would err on the side of making sure that they realize that once you do that, you're going to be able to see their email, and so is that okay with you? I just want to make sure that that's okay with you before I start working on the machine. And I don't know about the other campuses. At UCSC, we go for verbal authorization is acceptable. If it's a really gnarly situation, we will get it in writing, and sometimes we do email, sometimes we do a form. You had Well, and the challenge about that, though, um, and I'm just going to say for the mic that this was somebody from San Diego who was saying that since you're not actually actively opening the email, um, the consent for working on the computer is acceptable until you actively open the email, in which case you need permission. The challenge with that, and people ask me about this all the time, is that everybody has their email set up to preview. And so you really can't avoid it. And so, again, you know, my, if somebody asks me, my advice is going to be err on the side of caution. Just make sure, you know, really casual, really quick, really easy. Make sure the person whose machine you're working on knows in advance, and, and you know that I'm going to be in your email. That's okay, right? I'm not going to look at it, but that sort of thing. 
So, so given that the first question came about this subject matter, again, it's a very complicated topic. It's really hard to be black and white about this stuff. And that's exactly what people need in a training. I mean, this just hammers home the point. It's exactly what people need in a training. Conceptual does not work, and talking around it doesn't work. At some, people, pe at some point, people just need a line, and you've got to give it to them. And, and after a point, if you're not able to, it might not be worth putting the content in the training if it just raises more question than it gives clarity to folks. Well, and that's what we did with like the request for information. It's like, okay, A, B, anything else go here. With the ECP, there were so many situations that we just had to come up with one and then tell people, if you're still not sure, contact us. If you think you might be being asked to do something inappropriate, contact us. And you know, my information, my supervisor's information is spattered throughout this entire training for if you've got questions, just, just ask. Ask first. In fact, this last, the last ECP slide, whoops, wrong way. The last ECP slide even says, if you're not sure, stop. And that's something that people need to hear. At least people on our campus, I found, needed to hear. Because it, I don't know about your IT folks. Our IT folks, and myself included, really, really, really want to help people. Really want to do anything to get the problem solved. And sometimes might not be thinking about, is there a line here that I have to worry about crossing? And it's only in hindsight that they realize that they may have done something inappropriate. And I get a lot of those um, questions about, hey, Julie, I just did blah, blah, blah. Was that OK? Do I need to do anything to clean it up? And so we really are trying to get the word out that if you've got a question about it, we're hoping this helps. We're hoping this training helps create some red flags that will go off in people's heads and that they'll know that they'll get a sense of when they really do need to stop and ask before going on. Something interesting that I also learned is that developing a training can actually help drive policy. And my example for this is our social engineering slide, Beware of Social Engineering. When I first showed this training to our IT policy work group, the very first thing they said to me is, there needs to be something in this training about social engineering. This slide wasn't there. There needs to be something in this training about social engineering. Everybody needs to understand what social engineering is, how to guard against it. This is key because IT folks have privileged access. And if they screw up, it's all the worse than if somebody else does. So I wrote this slide. It was basically what you see here, except it didn't have this third little point here that says ITS leadership will support you if you need to delay fulfilling a request until its legitimacy can be verified. So I brought it back to the policy work group and they said, yeah, great, this is good information, but you need to reassure people that if they follow these practices, if they do the right thing, they're not going to get in trouble from their boss for telling the chancellor that he has to wait for a password reset until they can verify that it really is truly indeed the chancellor. And we didn't have overtly that level of assurance in our division prior to this training. I literally wrote this bullet point, got the policy work group to approve it, and we had to run it up the flagpole 
and get our senior management team, we had to get our vice chancellor to approve that if people do the right thing, they have permission from their management to delay requests in order to make sure that it's a legitimate request. And so this actually drove policy in our division about what is and isn't okay. And now, personally, I have a level of confidence that people wouldn't genuinely have gotten in trouble for something like this, because this is what you're supposed to do. But folks in the division, and I heard this loud and clear, didn't necessarily feel that about their own individual bosses. And they, they, want, they insisted on getting this written into the training. So it was, just, it was a very interesting process there. Another really, really quick, easy lesson that I learned is that people need definitions. If you have a group of 275 people who are taking a training, I promise you somebody's not going to know what just about anything means. So every time somebody said, I don't understand that, what's that mean? We just slapped a new definition into the training. And this is kind of an excuse to show you a few more slides. But um, we have a whole section on, on responsibilities for IT service providers. And one of the little mini sections in there are requirements associated with privileged access. Folks had no idea what we were talking about when we said privileged access. Do you mean admins? Do you mean I can see everybody in PPS? What are you talking about? So we developed a definition for the purposes of this training that helped focus that we're talking about any sort of broad or deep or elevated access and added it to this slide. The slide used to just start out with the use of privileged access section. Another slide that includes definitions is what is our what is a security incident slide that's part of our reporting security incident section. We just start out right off the top with defining a security incident for folks so that again we know they know what we're talking about. Now I went to a presentation earlier today where Davis has a list of examples of security breaches that need to be reported. And so now I'm thinking, ooh, I can I can steal that and I can make this better. So it, it's constantly evolving. And that also fits in with the earlier lesson I talked about, which is be as black and white as possible. If you can tell people you have to report this, all the better. And then last but not least in the examples for this, we have an entire section in the training. It's the longest section in the whole training that's devoted to defining restricted and other types of confidential data, giving examples of that information, and um, giving definitions. And so this is just one slide out of that training with a definition of personal identity information, or PII. But the whole section is focused on that. Whenever I do a training for an IT group, the first thing they ask me to talk about is restricted data. They want their folks to know what it is, exactly what data elements we're talking about. That's another thing that we did at um, UCSC was our IT security committee, which is one of our governance bodies defined data elements that are always considered restricted data for the campus. And so in the training in this section, the restricted data section can list real live data elements, which is great. The last big lesson learned was to include a quiz if you're doing a training. Um, I got this suggestion really early on, you know, very first group that I ran this by said, oh, and there should be a quiz. It'll help us focus our, our knowledge. I like to take a quiz after, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people said the same thing. So once the content of the training became relatively well-defined, 
um, when I'd send it out for feedback, I would also start asking people, oh, and give me ideas for quiz questions. We're going to include a quiz, submit a quiz question, submit five quiz questions, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I got back some really interesting quiz questions. Most of them were questions that could be answered just directly from the training. This question, which of the following meets our password requirements? Well, if you don't know the answer, you could always go to any of the password-related pages in the training, click on the link, go to our requirements, and see that indeed C, not coincidentally UCSE forever, meets our uh, password requirements. Similarly, another question, um, which of the following is not part of our minimum network connectivity requirements, which, by the way, are brand new. Um, and if you go to the little section on minimum connectivity requirements, you would see that indeed B is not a, a minimum network connectivity requirement. So, you know, these are there's just questions directly from the content of the training. Um, when we who were developing the training wrote questions, we wrote very similar ones. You know, we wanted people to go back, and if they didn't remember, find the information so that it helped reinforce what they had read. But going out to... I guess I'd say outsiders, and asking them to submit ideas for questions, we would get some questions that weren't covered in the training or that weren't clearly covered in the training. And I'd get those, and I'd have to look at them and figure out, well, do we throw out the question because this isn't in the training, or is it pointing out that we're lacking something in the training? I would say nine times out of ten, we ended up revising the training so that we could ask the question that the person wanted to ask because it was a really good question. And it just pointed out that something was missing, which is why I can't say enough about including a quiz, but don't write it yourself. Because if I write the quiz questions, I know it's in the training. So it's, it's self-fulfilling. Um, so this question, I'm sure you've all read it right now, um, there's only one right answer here, which is if you found that there's malware on your system and you suspect a breach, you should contact the ITS Support Center. That's the only answer that's right in every circumstance. But it wasn't clear from the training, in fact, the training didn't say anything on it, that A, take the system offline and rebuild it immediately, isn't always appropriate. And so we had to modify our incident response procedures slide to tell people that if restricted or confidential data is involved, don't do anything like patching or rebuilding the system or running antivirus until you hear from IT security. And again, the question pointed out that this wasn't clarified in the training. And it was a big missing piece because we get questions from um, IT folks spread around campus. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I just did a, a virus scan on this system, and the security guys will go, you did what? So it's, it's important information. Another example is we have a question about when do we potentially need to notify in the event of a security breach. And the only mention that the training had about when we need to notify people in the event of a, a breach was when PII is involved, when there's a reasonable belief that there's been unauthorized access to PII. But there are a lot of other circumstances where we might also notify, even if we're not you know, black and white required by law, this wasn't talked about at all in the training. And what we ended up doing was adding a whole new slide about notifying people in the event of a security breach. And we talked briefly about, because we mentioned it earlier, we talked briefly about if there's a PII breach, you're probably going to have to notify. But then there's a whole 
kind of discussion about other circumstances that you may want to take into account in order to decide whether to notify or not. And of course, it's not we as individuals who are taking this into account. It's our campus incident response team. But it's all stuff that the IT folks should know about whether some about the seriousness of something and also information that they should include when they're reporting that there's been a security breach. So I think adding a quiz kind of unintentionally unintentionally led to a level of refinement in the training that I don't think we would have gotten to without the quiz. It was, it was a total surprise to me. And again, what I can't say enough about is ask people who aren't you, ask people who aren't writing the training to submit quiz questions, because that's what made all the difference. So in the end, through this whole process of you know feedback, modify, feedback, modifying, applying all these lessons, can't tell you how many passes we did through the trainings every time we really got a lesson loud and clear. We would just go through and re-revise all the slides and then do it again and do it again. Um, in the end, we ended up really getting a, a pretty decent set of refined content. We have, we've settled on a depth for the material. We've settled on a focus for the material that the people who are reviewing it pretty much tend to agree is appropriate. And we've asked a lot of people to review it. That's something that I would recommend as well. I mean, if you're sending something out for feedback, get a good cross-section of the people who are going to be affected by whatever you're doing for the feedback. Um, it really didn't work to just stick with one group. I had to ask a bunch of groups, a bunch of individuals. In the end, in the end, we have a training with 77 different slides under these seven general topics. I had said way back when I started, we started with about 50. And the people who were the keep it short, keep it short, keep it short people are really happy with this, which is a good indication that we've revised the material relatively well, that we've added clarity as opposed to just hacking and making it more dense and more confusing. Catch up to my notes here. So just to bring all these lessons learned home, um, first, figure out what you've got already and start there. Um, unless you have a very specific reason to, don't include policy verbatim. People just don't like to read policy. Instead, focus on summaries, focus on key takeaways. Um, give people references and contacts for information. If they want to read the policies, they can go and read the policies. Use examples and questions in real-life situations. That's what people wanted. They just wanted to know how the information applied to them. Um, clarity, not length, is what's important. Be black and white whenever possible, especially when you're talking about requires and requirements and expectations of people. Um, my big lesson, which is good enough is fine if everybody can agree on the good enough. It's a hard one for me, but sometimes, sometimes there's no black and white. Define terms, include a quiz, both to test learning and refine content. And I've said this a million times, and I'm sure in the next 10 minutes I'll say it a million more. The key to all of this is input, lots and lots and lots of input from really everybody and their brother. Um, <clears throat> we have about, like I said, about 275 people in our division. I would say that by the time we're done with this, probably between 50 and 75 people 
will have been involved in some stage of development of this training. Um, and always be sure to run stuff by subject matter experts, because when you are asking a billion people for feedback, they don't necessarily know what the right and wrong answers are. So it's really important to check the nuts and bolts of the facts with the people who really are the experts on those facts so that you don't end up incorporating feedback that turns into incorrect information. Um, and incorporate feedback. <clears throat> that sounds silly, but I do know people who ask for input and then don't do anything with it. If you're going to ask for input, I strongly advise that you use it. And my philosophy for this, and it's worked really well, is be willing to revise anything and everything, especially if you're starting out with the just throw together a rough draft and get feedback on it mentality for how to start. You know, you've got to know that you're going to need to revise this stuff. Any other questions before I move into briefly challenges and next steps? Ooh, quiet crew. Okay. Now, a lot of the lessons learned that I talked about really have been challenges, but I want to highlight a couple. The most obvious and probably the biggest is time. Uh, my time for developing the training, the time of the people that I'm asking for feedback, calendar time. I mean, it's been a year, for goodness sakes, that I've been working on this. That's a long time. And most of that is the feedback cycle, You know, waiting for somebody to actually have the time to review it and get back to me, and then I can move on to the next step. Uh, especially if it's a subject matter expert and I can't move on until I hear from them whether I got something right or not. So time was a big deal. It still is a big deal. Um, participation and follow-through are closely related to time. Most of the people who helped me out in this training, most of the people who reviewed it and gave me feedback and quiz questions and all of that, I would classify as volunteers. And everybody's got a full plate. Everybody's busy. So getting people's participation, actually working with them to follow through and hear back from them and everything when you're working with volunteers is very challenging. Um, one of the strategies that I came up with, and it's, I mean, it's no um, massive secret or anything, but one of the strategies I came up with was to schedule time on people's calendars. It rarely worked to send out the materials and ask people to get back to me, even if I gave them a date. What worked the best, and I ended up doing this almost exclusively, what worked the best was scheduling time in the campus calendar that everybody keeps to not only for the feedback, to, but to review the materials also. So that we were sitting down for like an hour and 45 minutes of that, they were going through the training. And 15 minutes of it, they were talking with me and giving me their input. But that was the only way they could build it into their schedule. So that's my, my two cents of advice on that one. Handling conflicting feedback is always interesting because people always want to see their feedback reflected verbatim in stuff, and you can't always do that, especially when there are people who are telling you stuff like this, and there's no way you're going to be able to incorporate both of it. Both of it. Oh, well. Um, so handling conflicting feedback is just one of those things about being diplomatic sometimes. Um, sometimes I would get people in the same room and, and hash out, what really made sense. More often than not, I would just take all the feedback and come up with some sort of kludgy 
combination that seemed to address what everybody was really trying to get at and just show it to them again and say, okay, did I get it? And do a little bit of tweaking. More often than not, that worked okay. Um, but it was kind of this ongoing process of, did I get it? Oh, okay, I'll make that tweak. Now did I mess it up for you? Oh, okay, I'll make that tweak. And there's a little dance there. Um, writing quiz questions sounds like a weird challenge. Writing quiz questions is hard. It takes a lot of time. And it especially takes a lot of time if you're asking volunteers to write quiz questions for you. So even though it's not a complicated challenge, I want to highlight it that I'm strongly advocating including a quiz. Including a quiz is a, is a lot of extra work, too. I, I should take that back. It's not extra work. It's, it's um, part of the process, but it feels like extra work. Um, so those are some challenges that I wanted to highlight. And then for next steps, where we are in next steps, everything I've talked about this whole time is all about content, content, content. Where we are right now is we're in the middle of figuring out a look and feel for the training and a delivery mechanism for the training. Because this is really the first for our division for a training that we've written for ourselves as a, a mandatory thing that everybody has to take. So we're, we're writing it for ourselves. We're delivering it to ourselves. The last thing I want to do is roll it out to the division and then have the division make some decision over here that this is what we want the look and feel of our materials to be. And now I have to go back and redo everything and rework it into this new decision plan. So I'm working with our instructional technologies group to figure out, OK, what do we want the look and feel of trainings like this to be? Because mine isn't the only one. I know we've got a couple more in the pipeline. How are we going to deliver it to the division? Um, just the, the literal, the physical delivery mechanism. Are we going to use the student system? Are we going to use LMS? I honestly don't know the answer to this yet. Um, what I'm doing in the interim, and what you'll probably see if you go online to whatever the URL is going to end up being, um, initially I'm just going to be putting it up as a flat PDF just to get it out there so that people can look at it. But that's not what it's going to end up being, I'm confident. So I know that this is going to be a process because my division doesn't have the answer yet for me of what's our standard look and feel for trainings. And so we're going to have to figure that out in order to make it fit that mold and then roll it out. The other next step that I get to play with is how to roll out the training so that everybody is going to take it. Or the way I say it here, so there's a chance that everybody's going to take it. Because this is supposed to be a required training. It's going to be a required training. But I know that there's nobody in my division who's going to be able to add to their already full and overflowing plates the responsibility to monitor compliance for this, that everybody's taken it and follow up and make sure that it really happens. So what I'm doing is I'm just looking at models that have a chance of some success in this area but are a lot lower maintenance. Um, just to share some current thinking, and I know that there's other ideas out there, so I don't know if this is going to be what we do. But one of the things I'm thinking of is, OK, we add it to the new employee checklist of things all new employees have to do. Like, we're not hiring anybody, but you know, it's the concept of it. Um, have the management identify a date by when everybody in the division is required to take that training and you know, have our highest levels of management communicate that. And then assign responsibility to the supervisors just for their immediate people. Not like hierarchically, where you're responsible for this person having made sure that this person does it and blah, blah, blah. But just assign it to the immediate supervisors make sure that they're, to make sure that their individual groups have completed the training and 
maybe that's good enough. You know, maybe by the date that management is set, then we just move into the expectation that everybody has the background information that's in this training and go on from there. I don't know if that's really what we're going to be doing, but that's some of the ideas that I'm thinking about in how we're really going to roll this out realistically. So that's the material that I have prepared about developing a cybersecurity and policy training for IT professionals. Um, I don't know how much time we have because my watch is over here. Okay, so we've got about 10 minutes if there's any questions. Any other questions? I hear crickets. Um, I don't have... If, if you want to get in touch with me because you're doing a training or working on developing it, my email is julieg at ucsc.edu, and I'm more than happy to help out. Uh, my philosophy is we stole this stuff from Berkeley. Uh, people ask me all the time if they, can use, if they can use our trainings, and I really think that that's the way to go is you know, share the knowledge, share what you've developed. So please feel free to contact me. And I'm not sure the communication mechanism, but we'll make sure that you get um, the URL for this training once it's online. Thank you. <laughs>